Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. There's been a modest upturn in investor sentiment due partly to apparent progress on a debt ceiling deal that would avoid a default and economic data that continues to show the U.S. economy is holding up well. So on today's CIO Snapshot, we will talk about this uptick in near-term optimism, but also dive into optimism about the secular outlook. So joining us for the conversation this week. Glad to welcome back Jason Trejo, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend and looking forward to our conversation to begin yet another week. Good morning, Dan. Yes, it was a nice, relaxing weekend. Kind of feels like we're at the start of summer. Looking forward to that and looking forward to another interesting week in the markets. Definitely. And with the start of a new week, I do want to point out to our listeners and our clients of UBS that the UBS Chief Investment Office has released the latest UBS Houseview Investment Strategy Guide uh, this for the month of June. So perhaps that's a good starting point with the Houseview update, Jason. There were no changes this month with respect to asset allocation. So maybe you can speak to us about why that's the case and how does the current market sentiment fit into this? You're correct that there were no changes in our asset class preferences or our messages in focus. They all stayed the same with some, some small tweaks. The, the rationale behind that is, is kind of twofold. One, if you actually look at the market performance you know, over the course of the month from the last house view update to the one we did last, last week, uh, markets were very kind of narrowly uh, range bound. Whether that's the S&P 500, it traded within really about 100 percentage po- points. Uh, same thing on the Treasury front, yields from the 10-year, the two-year, plus or minus you know, about 20, 30 basis points. So pretty narrow range trading. It kind of reflected the markets looking for some sort of catalyst or, or factor that would sort of cause them to rethink the thesis. Then when we look at the macro environment, uh, you know, things really haven't changed much in terms of the overall view of the next you know, six months you know, to a year-end. Risk still remain to the downside for the U.S. economy. We've gotten, you know, let's call it more resilient data than we expected or investors would have expected at this point in time, given how much the Fed has done, given concerns about the banking situation causing credit contraction. But the economic data still comes in, you know, is coming in decently solid. Uh, There was positive news on the debt ceiling last week in terms of negotiation progress. Just things can still break down. But I think it's, you know, giving some reassurance that there will be a resolution before we reach the X date or potential default. Um, so you can sort of reduce that some risk. But overall, the, the macro is still skewed to the downside because ultimately, if the economy stays okay and some of these other risks go away and the banking situation isn't causing a significant contraction of credit, then the Fed could potentially do more. And that's what we saw a little bit last week where there was some talk of maybe the Fed would pause in June, but then reassess and skip a meeting and then hike potentially in July. And so part of what we saw last week is the markets moving a little bit higher in terms of where rates are going and even pricing in a little more probability of a rate hike either in June or July, but also taking out quite amount of the rate cuts that were related this year. So that was sort of the, the dynamic kind of towards the end of last week. Um, but if that happens, if the market ends up you know, taking out those rate hikes, if that doesn't cut as the market's been anticipating, that just means that there's sort of more risk of downside that as long as the Fed is hiking or at least holding at the current level, there's risks of something sort of you know, breaking later on down the line. So, Again, the, that means to us the risk reward for equities versus high quality bonds is still unattractive. That's why I suggest you buy quality bonds, buy investment grade corporate bonds, at least for your marginal dollar relative to equities. Think about also diversifying outside of U.S. equities and growth stocks, which have done very well this year. 
uh, now that as a result, they become you know quite expensive. So these aren't you know calls to outright sell these positions, but more kind of kind of balance it out and make sure you're not overly exposed to some of these areas that have done quite well this year. And thinking about you know at this point in time, limited upside for equities for growth stocks in particular, um, and some you know not a bad idea to think about pairing your your that with a fixed income portfolio that's barbelling higher quality fixed income and bonds at one end of the maturity spectrum with, you know, uh, very high quality, very short maturity uh, bonds to get, you know, your income at this point in time. Thank you, Jason. I know you cited a few of CIO's messages in focus. I quickly want to point out to our listeners, our clients of UBS, you may reference a separate podcast which was released this past Friday where Jason did provide a bit of a deeper dive into the messages in focus from the Chief Investment Office. So that's now available up on Apple as well as Spotify. With that, Jason, so that covers the near-term outlook. Turning to the secular outlook, you recently published a blog titled Rosebuds that lays out the bull case for the long term. And for our frequent listeners, you might be picking up on a pattern with respect to the title as this is the third blog in a series. So Jason, can you remind us, what is the rationale for this secular bull case outcome? Well, first, let's describe what the secular bull case would look like. Um, I mean, this is sort of envisioning an economy, U.S. economy for really the rest of this decade, at least the next five years, that consists of sustained growth above 2%. The fall in inflation, uh, disinflation as we you know kind of go throughout the decade back towards two percent, uh, and strong job growth uh, as the decade proceeds. This would be fueled by rapid productivity improvement and you know sort of revolutionary technologies that can help you know, to change the world. Like, you know, some things like AI. You know, I first proposed this scenario in October of uh, 2021, so about a year and a half ago, and it was really kind of based on ten factors that were happening or very well could happen. Uh, uh, and really the kind of the crux of the idea that the thesis is that uh, it's based on kind of surging investments in the public and private sectors uh, enabled by still ample capital availability and a willingness for businesses to take risks and transform their businesses in a changing world that would result in faster productivity growth. So it's a kind of a good economic outcome fueled by really kind of supply side improvements of investment, productivity enhancements, and, you know, businesses in business dynamism getting kind of more active in a way that hasn't been really for at least 15 years, if not longer. So Jason, within the blog, you do mention that there are 10 factors on which the bull case is based. We may not have time to cover all 10, though. Are there a few in particular, Jason, that you would like to expand on for us and maybe speak a bit to how they're playing out? Well, so I think we can group the factors into four kind of categories. The first being sort of investment-related factors consisting of, you know, uh, public infrastructure and R&D investment, uh, you know, the sexual energy transition and really kind of a CapEx boom. And in some way, this is, this is sort of playing out. A year and a half ago, we were talking about legislative actions on an infrastructure bill, at the time Build Back Better, which became the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the um, so you're seeing those have now been passed. You've seen now actually companies announce investments in response to those, those those bills. So that definitely is kind of this kind of investment thesis is playing out. And we are seeing definitely an uptick in, in CapEx activity, whether it's in specifically like manufacturing areas, intellectual property. So that kind of, you know, those sort of factors are playing out. Uh, a second set of factors, I call them sort of business dynamism, consisting of like surging you know, new business formation, increased risk-taking, abundant access to growth capital, just on the first one, searching business formation, every month we can see how many new businesses were formed based on sort of registrations uh, in the U.S. Pre-pandemic, those were averaging around 300,000. 
since the pandemic began, after the first few months when there's a lot of dislocation, this is since like the summer or fall of 2020, it's been averaging around 450,000 pretty consistently. That's a almost 50% increase uh, where it was pre-pandemic. So if you look at that as a proxy for people willing to take, you know, uh, your risks, you really try new things, starting a new business, that business dynamism has definitely kicked in. Third factor is a digital disruption. You know, digitizing you know, business models, reorienting business around new technologies. That was already in play after, you know, kind of post-pandemic or as the pandemic was going on. And we realized, you know, we can work remote. We can change how we conduct businesses. Now you add the release of chat, GPT, demonstrating a general purpose technology and AI, how it can really be revolutionary in many different walks of life and businesses. I think people are now very rapidly trying to assess what does it mean, how to think about it for their business. That can have, you know, significant productivity improvements if it gives workers new tools to do things. It could also have negative consequences, certainly, but there are positive aspects there. The fourth, I would call a set of factors where sort of macro conditions, we had a positive demand shock during the first part of the pandemic that kind of helped break us out of the secular stagnation kind of dynamic that was playing out pre-pandemic. Uh, we've seen faster wage growth, at least nominal wage growth, especially at the lower income consumer level, which is relevant for you know addressing some of the income inequality dynamics that are playing out. And they say relative to where we were 18 months ago, these conditions and factors are less supportive. They've gone from maybe tailwinds to maybe minor headwinds. But the overall assessment is that we're getting to me like an investment surge and sort of this digital disruption. There's sort of necessary but not sufficient conditions for this bull case playing out. That's happening. There does seem to be more business dynamism despite sentiment being quite poor. So there are factors in play right now that would suggest this this thesis, this conjecture of a secular bull case could happen. Um, you know, necessary conditions are, are happening for this to, to actually materialize at some point in time. So, Jason, I do want to point out that within the blog, you mentioned that the odds of this scenario playing out have increased. Can you expand a bit as to why you believe that is? Well, I, I just alluded to like how, you know, take, for example, in the investment spending a year and a half ago, we were, you know, conjecturing that there would be legislative actions on infrastructure, on, on sort of build back better, things of that sort. Now that's actually happened and we're seeing, you know, kind of green shoots or I call them rosebuds of things sort of blooming in that regard. We're seeing announcements of companies saying they're going to build new factories, make new investments. So that's actually happening. Uh, what's also the case then is I think relative to 18 months ago, we we knew it would take time for some of these things to materialize. Like kind of the green shoots would take not just three months, but take, you know, one year, two years at a minimum to kind of show up and really start to bear fruit for the rest of this decade. Now, fast forward, we're starting to see some of those those green shoots. Um, and, and to get the benefits out in terms of productivity, that would take time. You know, back a year and a half ago, the concern really was in the marketplace. And what sort of started this whole blog series was that there's a lot of concerns about inflation's high. Uh, we're going to return to the 1970s to inflation. The Fed's going to have to raise rates you know, to, to combat inflation, potentially kill the recovery, go into recession. And instead of getting a bull case scenario, you're talking more about the bear case of a recession and maybe kind of going reverting back to this secular stagnation regime of low rates, low inflation, low growth, as it was the case pre-pandemic. But even on the macro front, while inflation is high and the Fed has raised rates 500 basis points, somewhere like, you know, we've kind of gotten through selling that pain, yet the economy is still holding up. Uh, it's possible that if inflation continues to fall, while well, growth holds up, we can get a soft landing. And if you get a soft landing, then you can kind of 
don't have any real negative you know, macro dynamics that would sort of curtail this investment surge that's taking place, as an example. So time was against the, you know, the scenario playing out 18 months ago because it would take time to get the green shoots. Uh, and there's a chance that a recession could kill that off before it ever happened. Now we're seeing green shoots, and we may not get that recession that's going to kill those green shoots to allow them actually kind of grow into something more significant. So I say the odds have, have, have gone up. It's still the bull case, and by definition, a bull case is not going to the most likely outcome. There's, it's more likely it doesn't happen than it does. But relative to a year ago, 18 months ago, I think it's more chance of it happening now than it was back then. So with that in mind, Jason, before we close out, can you take a few moments to speak to the investment implications of this secular bull case? So if we get this bull case scenario, you know, what we're talking about then is, you know, it's kind of faster growth uh, than you know, that may be pre-pandemic or at least comparable, but probably also a little bit higher inflation. So in overall nominal GDP growth is higher than it was before, uh, which from a rates perspective would mean that rates, like the 10-year, for example, instead of hovering around 2 2.5% in that range or with a two-handle, would likely have maybe 3% or higher. Um, so rates are a little bit higher than they were before. We're not going back or, or unlikely we'd go back in this situation to like, you know, rates at the zero lower bound. So I think that's that's one shift to where we were pre-pandemic. Uh, it means on the equity front, an environment where nominal growth is good, you're getting productivity gains, that should be good for earnings. So overall, for the marketplace, it should be good for equities. Uh, you know, the challenge to equity market outlook overall is that stocks at the index level, like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, they're relatively expensive. Um, and when stocks are expensive, it means that, you know, they kind of almost have to grow into those, to those valuations. So therefore, the returns to equities at the overall market level should be you know solid but not necessarily spectacular even though it's what we're talking about is a bull case scenario for the economy i think in this what you want to then look at is what are the real beneficiaries of this type of scenario playing out uh in a capex cycle a lot of this is taking place so things like industrials energy companies that are tied to the energy transition materials these are some kind of obvious winners like you're physically building assets um as opposed to you know you know digital assets exactly uh you know, there's an element where the, you know, a lot of tech companies could, could win. If you can see the, uh, you know, what's happened in the marketplace recently with AI, everyone's assessing, you know, what are the real winners? And in a lot of the cases, it looks to be, you know, the big tech companies. Many of those are also quite expensive. There's also a question whether, from the AI perspective, is this going to be broad-based winners? Or is it the case of, uh, you know, it sort of democratizes data. It, it uh, you know, uh, also it has a winner-take-all element for, for companies, like the biggest companies win. So the tech sector overall may not necessarily be a big winner for this uh, new revolution. Um, and especially if interest rates stay higher, the tailwind of falling rates that benefited tech stocks and growth stocks for much of the, the past decade, that isn't there. And perhaps the valuations aren't fully reflecting the fact that rates could stay higher relative to expectations. So I think it's a little bit of shift against the favor of maybe some value stocks, uh, you know, some kind of you know, hard asset kind of stocks, some real assets. Uh, in a way that those were the underperformers for the past decade. And the final thing I'll say just in terms of investment implications, and it kind of goes back to the opening comments about the cyclical outlook and the change in the house view. There has been a modest change in sentiment. And even over the past week or two, uh, you know, perhaps that's a little bit tied to better progress on the debt ceiling, but there also seems to be, uh, you know, an acknowledgement that maybe the U.S. economy is just operating in a way that investors have fully appreciated it's why we haven't gone into recession at this point in time. Maybe the soft landing probability has gone up a little bit. And so there's a little bit of maybe confusion about the cyclical patterns. 
But underlying that might be really what's going on is there are these secular trends that are taking place that are starting to kind of really bear fruit today that weren't evident or really, really thought of 18 months ago. And so there's a bit of conflating some of these secular trends that are positive uh, and offsetting some of the cyclical weakness. And that's leading to, in the near term, a little bit better economic performance. Uh, and that's why investors are confused. They're not able to kind of disentangle in real time what's actually happening as we start to kind of appreciate some of these trends, that might become you know, more apparent going forward and also help to fuel a little bit better sort of sentiment and sort of optimism about the current state of the economy. It's interesting. A lot of considerations there, a lot of variables when it comes to positioning, and we shall see how the secular bull case scenario unfolds in the months to come. Though, Jason, thank you for dropping by today to keep us updated on CIO's latest thinking, referencing the House View Investment Strategy Guide at the top of our conversation. Again, I do want to point our listeners to Jason's blog, the third in his series. So the blog title is Rosebuds, which is available now up on UBS.com slash CIO. On that same site, our listeners, our clients can also make reference to the latest UBS House View Investment Strategy Guide, as well as the monthly letter from Mark Hayfley, Global Chief Investment Officer. So Jason, thank you again for joining us here on the CIO Strategy Snapshot to begin another weekend. And we will look forward to picking back up with our conversation with you in the week ahead. You're welcome. Have a great week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.